Ladies and gentlemen, stand cheer for the Bulldog Fans Podcast. Here's your hosts, Matt and Scott, on their way down the tunnel at ANZ Stadium, on their way to the microphone. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up. Go up as one for Matt and Scott, the NRL Bulldogs Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Bulldogs Fans Podcast. I'm Scott. I'm normally joined by a good mate of mine, Matt, but I've traded in him for uh, Bulldogs royalty, Daryl Halligan. How are you, mate? I'm good, thank you, Scott. Some sort of trade. Yeah, I, I won the deal. I won it this week. I got the. It's better than Lotto. Uh, I just was going uh, through that you used to play uh, rugby union in New Zealand. Yeah, I played rugby union in New Zealand for uh, most of my junior years. Um, I'm sort of from Central North Island, come from around the Lake Taupo area, Turangi. And schooled in a uh, in Hamilton in the Waikato, played um, rugby union all my life until basically arrived um, in Australia at age 24 in a couple of games for uh, the North Sydney Bears um, up until '94, and then um, like a fortunate switch across to the Doggies, um, which sees me uh, there for seven years. So how did that uh, deal come across? So you're playing rugby union in New Zealand, and then you started of North Sydney Bears, uh, how did that all happen? The, um, the coach of the North Sydney Bears at the time, uh, Steve Martin, back in uh, 1990, came across to uh, watch a couple of games of rugby union. Um, and he was watching a guy called uh, Paul Simonson play, who's the uh, father of Bailey Simonson, who, who uh, oh, actually was at, at Canterbury um, as a junior although he didn't sort of, um, I think, ball or something, but he's with Canberra now, um, Bailey. Um, and he was watching his dad play, and I played in that game. Uh, it was a game Waikato versus Otago. And then um, after the match, we went back to the after-match function, and um, he sort of sought me out and wanted to have a bit of a chat, Steve Martin. And um, about three months later, I ended up landing at uh, North Sydney Oval. So that was my uh, sort of pathway to rugby league. That's amazing. Was it a tough decision to go from you know, rugby union to league in a different country? Like, um, I, I guess looking back at the time, it, it was because rugby union was sort of all I'd played. Um, I'd been fortunate to play a couple of off-season or an off-season in Italy the season before. So I'd sort of been out and about a little bit. But um, yeah, and the Winfield Cup um, was really sort of like being peppered on TV in New Zealand. So it wasn't as if we were sort of like foreign to the game. Um, and Matthew Ridge had switched a little bit earlier. John Gallagher had gone to Leeds uh, a year before, two guys who were in my position um, or outside backs. Um, so, yeah, was it a hard decision? Um, no, probably not. It was just a, a new opportunity, really. No, that's enormous. Uh, how would uh, you describe your first... Do you remember your first game with North Sydney? And yeah, we played, like? Cam- we played Canberra. We'd won the comp the year before. Um, so it was quite... Um, quite a feat. Um, and they had, you know, like Mal Meninga, Ricky Stewart, Brad Clyde, Lazarus, um, Laurie Daly, um, North Sydney Oval. I actually didn't start the match. Um, Paul Simonson, Bailey's dad, started on the wing and you had two fresh reserves back in the 90s. Um, so I sat in a fresh reserve position and um, Bailey's dad, Paul, did his knee on the cricket pitch in North Sydney Oval in about oh, yeah. two or three minutes into the game and um, therefore, I got an opportunity. I uh, managed to come on. I think um, Peter Jackson scores a try. 
I kicked a couple of goals and uh, we beat Canberra that day 10-6. So it was um, was a fair start after they'd won the comp the year before. Yeah, beating the best team in your first game. Yeah. Is his rugby league, eh? I was a bit scary actually looking at Mal across, you know, I was only about 85 kilo at the time and those guys were monsters. But um, so, yeah, it was, um, it was a good experience, that's for sure. <laughs> So you did some goal kicking. I was doing some research in Union. So, um, what's the difference between goal kicking a rugby league ball and a Union ball? Is there any difference, or no? Technically, there's no difference. Um, the balls are the difference is in the ball itself. Which um, in the '90s there was a, the leather balls, which we just started to get rid of in both codes. Um, and by sort of like '92, '93, it was pretty much a synthetic rubber mix of a, of a football, which is slightly different between the Gilbert and the Steeden um, that we uh, have kicked with over the years. But technically, there's no difference. It's just sort of getting yourself used to and mastering um, whatever ball you, uh, you're using or whatever that, that comp is using. So no, the ball, uh, oh. once the leather had gone out of the uh, football, it was just uh, mastering the football. So in 94, you came to the Bulldogs to play yeah, most of your NRL career? Yep. I, uh, sorry, your first year into the grand final, pretty uh, nice start to a new club. How did the uh, Bulldogs opportunity come across and why why the move? Bulldogs had been minor premiers in 93 um, as well. Uh, and then um, I was up on sort of contract with the North Sydney Bears and Chris Anderson, I think he was looking for a goal kicker. Um, Canterbury had such a talented team with, you know, like Jimmy Dimmick and the likes of Dean Pay, the Smith brothers, Terry Lamb, of course, and a heap of attacking players. Um, so um, I think they, well, Bullfrog was, and Chris were looking for a goal kicker. Um, uh, Jason Taylor had just signed with North Sydney um, for the 94 season. Um, I was on tour with the Kiwis. Uh, so the Christmas of 93, we had a massive one of those sort of like kangaroo tours. And um, we'd agreed to a deal that I'd go to Canterbury when I returned from tour. But um, North Sydney sort of like uh, held out a little bit longer. So when I got back, we had a little bit of a dispute. But I think by the end of January, I was training at uh, Canterbury. I missed a pre-season trip with Canterbury, I think, to New Zealand um, that year. But um, yeah, and so in 94, we did. We, uh, we went my first year there. Um, got to know the guys sort of really well, and, although I knew a lot of them anyway. And um, yeah, we... we uh, were minor premiers that year, but we um, we bow out in the grand final to um, to Canberra. Mm, uh, how did, did that '94 year make you better in '95? Yeah, well, I, I guess back then everyone said you had to lose a grand final to win one, and that was sort of like the course uh, how it worked. So um, I don't think you know, like losing a grand final and having that opportunity means you might not ever have that come around again. Um, but certainly by the time 95 came around, 95 we didn't travel as well during the year as what we had in 94. Uh, there was a lot of confidence in the team um, just to actually get on a roll at the right time of the year um, to take the momentum with us. And, you know, a couple of games leading into those final series, I remember one against Brisbane who were red hot at the time. And um, Dean Pay puts a really good shot on Glenn Lazarus. Um, and Lezo goes off um, and then we roll past Brisbane, you know, but sort of things like that are, are missed when you think, oh, well, you win the comp and, you know, you beat Manly, but we sort of had to go past a couple of other teams that year as well, um, including Brisbane. 
Manly had only been beaten twice that year in the regular season, and we beat them at uh, Belmore one night on a really wet night. Um, and I mean, they were chopper block full of talent, you know, with Ian Roberts, Matthew Bridge, Menzies, Tuvi, Hasler. Um, you know, I was a star-studded side with some Bob Fulton coaching, and um, so. But but we didn't fear them, you know. We, we we knew we could beat them, and if the game went our way, um, we could. We got a forward pass. I think Simon Gilly scores a forward pass. <laughs> we get a bit lucky. I think we score on a seventh tackle too. I think one of the tries late. But um, yeah, so I mean, we didn't didn't really fear anyone in that um in that '95 season uh, because you know we'd we'd had that many wins against other clubs in '94 and '95, and it was just a matter of you know. If we played our best footy and played what we could do, then we're going to be a chance of winning. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, um, did you have any game day rituals when uh, anything that you did normally that you no, had to do? Game day rituals, I wasn't really sort of like um, massive on. Um, didn't have to wear, you know, a particular pair of underpants or flip <laughs> um, my toenails or, you know, comb my hair or that. I, I just sort of managed to get a goal-kicking routine in, in, in particular, that I'd do the day before a game and sometimes two days before the game as well. Um, and so in terms of those routines, I was more focused on on making sure my work was done with my goal-kicking in, in preparation for a game as against anything particularly on the day. So, you know, whether we were busing to the game or going by our own car or dropping the kids off or something, it, it didn't particularly worry me what happened on, on game day. Uh, in today's game, we see uh, players who make their debut get a massive jersey presentation, usually provided by the coach or family members that hand out the jersey. Uh, always a big moment on social media. Was there anything like that at North Sydney or at Canterbury at the time when you made your You know, funnily, funnily enough, I've done a few of those over the years now. Uh, <laughs> with players, but I, no, I never got handed my jersey. <laughs> Could you... Even at, so even at North Sydney or um, Canterbury, uh, I'm just trying to think back now. Uh, um, it was just, I don't even know if they just slung it out and threw it out across the room at you and said, there, number two, it's yours for the day. <laughs> um, it certainly wasn't a handshake presentation and and that back in the time, no. <laughs> hey, I've missed out on something. <laughs> <laughs> Can you name some of the players that you were lucky enough to introduce into the NRL, like hand out the jersey? and? Uh, yeah, uh, a couple, uh, Marcelo Montoya, um, yeah. in, um, we did in, in Dunedin um, there as well. That's um, right, yeah. Yeah, and I've done a couple of Kiwi ones for a couple of the guys there. Um, but yeah, no, I think Marcelo and other Bulldogs, and there was another player um, in that game as well in Dunedin that um, I just can't remember his name. But yeah, so but it, Mars, Mars and I always... Um, Talk about it, and he, he's always pretty happy about it. He's actually with the Warriors now, so yeah, I was going to say a little yeah. bit of goal So I bump into him and catch up with him. So yeah, oh, that's be cool. pretty cool. Pretty cool moment every time he sees you around the training. Yeah, well, uh, that's, a good, that's a good thing. By you know, like you know, there's plenty of movement and players around. So and there's plenty of guys, you know, from the dogs that we've touched base with over the years that we generally bump into, which is pretty cool. You made, uh, you got to play uh, the highest honours and play for New Zealand in your career and relatively early. So when you found out, how did you find out first? And uh, when you did, did you get on the phone to anyone or drive to someone's place? And who was the first person you told saying that, hey, I made the international side? So uh, 
I first um, played for New Zealand in 92. 1991 was my first year um, playing uh, rugby league. And, yeah, no, I got a, um, got a call from, like, uh, Howie Tamati, the coach, and he just said, you know, you're in the mix and what have you. And then, uh, you know, fortunately enough, that next year we, um, we played Great Britain at Carlaw Park. So um, when you look back at it, you think some of these grounds aren't even here anymore. Like, Carlaw Park's not even... Um, they've knocked it down and back some tennis courts up there, I think, back in, in NZ. Um, and yeah, so a couple of things I remember more about that is like debuting with a couple of guys, Quinn and Pongi had debuted on the same day that, that I did for the Kiwis, um, which was a really like special moment and what have you for Q, he's not with us anymore. Um, but yeah, so no, um, yeah, that was about the course action. There wasn't, there was no real grandstanding back there about, you know, <laughs> getting run by, you know, 50 people and saying congratulations to just, okay, sweet, let's go. Keen to get into camp with the boys and get going and throw the black jersey on. Did that make you a better player uh, once you came back to the club land? Um, you well, you're certainly more experienced. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm still two years into uh, rugby league and been fortunate to, you know, one play first grade, win a comp and two play for the Kiwis. So, but I am 26 years of age by then, so... Um, would I be a better player then than when I was 18? You'd imagine so. Um, but I was sort of, in a way, still learning the game, even though I'd only had, you know, 30 or 40 games of, of rugby league. I mean, to be fair, what they really wanted out of me was a whole heap of goals going between the posts, really, Scott. You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't think I was ever going to turn into Wendell Saylor or run as fast as, you know, Josh Addo Carr or something like that. But, um, yeah, so, no. And, and I was starting to um, kick some reasonable goals and get quite consistent at it, so which was good. So thanks to the Bullfrog for bringing us over. <laughs> when uh, you look back on it now, as a look back in your career, uh, winning a grand final with Canterbury or getting, you know, your first test match for New Zealand or where does that kind of sit? I know it's a tough one. <laughs> no, it's not tough at all. I think winning the comp is always something that once you're invested in, in the NRL here and the amount of time you spend with, you know, your club and your team trying to win a comp means that that will always be the pinnacle. Um, really proud, obviously, to, to wear the black jumper and would do so at any time. But, um, yeah, no, I think um, winning a comp sort of sets it off for you. It's sort of, uh, if you look back for a, for a signature in terms of what you wanted to achieve, um, then, sure, you wanted to play first grade, you wanted to play as well as you could, but you're over and above everything. You want to be part of a of a premiership winning team and um, to do that in uh, 95 with the boys was, um, yeah, that's probably number one. So uh, you highlight your goal kicking as, and you're the, by, probably by far the best going around in your time. Uh, some say you've changed the game and the necessity to turn fours into sixes. Um, plastic, the plastic tee being famously used by yourself. What yep. made you go well, like this needs to be a part, like you've changed the game now that you look at so many good goal kickers that's followed you by your example. Like you've got the famous Hasmore Majory that came straight after you. They look at the likes of Adam Reynolds, Jared yeah. Croker. So where, how did that come across? What did you think one day and say, well, we need to, you know, turn these tries into converted tries? Yeah, I don't think it was, certainly wasn't really that mindset, but Canterbury, um, you know, like through... Um, selection, I suppose, um, with Hazem and, and fortunately 
for myself. We basically dominated goal kicking for, you know, nearly two decades, really. Um, so the 90s through to 2000, you know, like, um, I mean, I wouldn't even the last couple of years when Hazen was in the team playing, I was, you know, I was shit scared he'd get a shot at goal because then I wouldn't get my spot in the team, you know what I mean? But So, and then Hazen um, took over after that. So we, you know, we were always one or two in the comp with goal kicking for nearly, nearly 20 years, um, which is great. But it was, it's more opportunity. Um, there was an opportunity for goal kickers to, you know, have a spot in the team as long as you could handle, handle yourself and play well. In Hazen's case, he was probably a little bit more talented and, you know, was a pretty exciting sort of winger as well for his, um, his time at Canterbury. Um, but, yeah, and the game was changing a little bit and, and the expectation on goal kickers was changing too. If, uh, even today, if you don't kick at 80% uh, for clubland, then you're a chance of someone else coming in and taking your spot. Mm. So goal kicking wasn't just something as a you know as the game got more professional. It was a, an area that clubs would focus on, throw resources at, and and expect results from. You know what I mean? Mm. And so yeah, to be part of that um, change in the cycle was just more opportunistic than anything. Um, and then when you when you view it yourself, when you are a goal kicker, you know, why would I practice three times a week for forty minutes at a time and, and kick forty goal kicks each session, which is hundred and twenty a week and forty weeks at a year is five thousand kicks a year. So why would I put all that practice in if I uh, wasn't gonna one get the opportunity to do it on the big stage and two be good at it? When we talk about goal kicking, you can't go past the ninety eight one against the Parramatta Eels in the yep. finals where you kicked it to go to extra time. Can you, do you actually remember that or do you remember your thought process or do you I remember it like, I remember more the kick now because I've seen it quite a few times <laughs> and it has become a signature moment, you know, which I guess every goal kicker would love. But um, I mean, I've kicked better goals than that in, um, over the years, but that particular goal, um, yeah, the emotion that it carries with it and just, the mo you know, coming back from 16-2 down um, to take extra time and then kick away an extra time um, was, you know, was really special against Parramatta and it was just theatre, basically. I more sort of remember kicking the goal, being so excited, and then Gary Carden was um, the trainer at the time and we ran together to give each other a celebration, a high-five and that, and we missed... <laughs> and like, I don't know who's more unco, he or he or I, but um, yeah. I'll so the, the thought process, no, I, I I'd kicked goals there the day before. Um, it was in the middle of the game. Um, you know, ninety eight. I'm sort of thirty years of age. It didn't really worry me the situation. Um, the ball just had to go over. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, if we miss it. Um, it's probably going to be talked about as well, but um, yeah, it's a great moment to have. Um, it's a great moment, sort of, to remember the more, more the you know, excitement of of the crowd and that, and the stories that come after it are fantastic. You know, some people I've heard they they were on the bus home already out of um, Sydney Football Stadium, and the mm. bus driver to actually stop the bus and they run back, but and obviously they missed the kick, but because we were down 16-2, but they've then at least got back to see extra time, and we scored two tries in extra time to you know, like uh, win the game comfortably in the end. But yeah, so there's, there's sort of stories that then float off the back of it and, you know, to be a part of it's fantastic. Mm, that an extra bit of spice to the rivalry of uh, Canterbury and Parramatta. Yeah. Just yeah. that, the rivalry in the 80s, and that uh, is another one that gets talked about every time they go head-to-head. -head. You always go back to the 98. Yeah, uh, well, game. 
it adds to it, you know, and that game in particular, I mean, Jared McCracken and um, Dean Pay, uh, Jimmy Dimmick, uh, mm-hmm. that all gone in the Super League uh, days across to Parramatta. Um, and we were a sort of really young team under Steve Folks here in 98. So it was, you know, it was sort of like Canterbury playing Canterbury in a way. <laughs> <laughs> or Canterbury playing some guys that left Canterbury with a couple of other players. So, yeah, so it sort of added to the spice and whatever. So you mentioned the uh, the late, great Steve Folks. Uh, who is the best coach that you've ever played under? And why would they be the best coach? Um, Folksy, I, I really enjoyed Folksy's um, coaching. Um, both uh, he and Chris at Canterbury, they're, they're subtly different for sure. Um, but we had good moments out of both, really. Um, so you sometimes, you know, associate that with how you've been coached. Chris, for me, I remember Chris, uh, I was about a month in, in 94 and kicking plenty of goals, scoring plenty of tries, but my defence wasn't up to what Canterbury wanted. And um, the reason was that I'd, I'd come from North Sydney and we would slide defence and therefore you'd count numbers and let the guys on the inside come across and take the defenders and you sometimes didn't come up with a tackle. And Chris, he pulled me aside and said, listen, Chuck, we do it a bit differently here. Um, so what I want you to do is I want you to come up and stop the ball. So you played fullback before in rugby union. You read the game well. He was just pumping me up a bit. And he said, so come up and in, make some tackles, make some collisions. Um, and, you know, I, I don't want to have this conversation in a month's time and send you back to reserve grade. So basically you've got a month to fix it up. You know what I mean? And that was after... Uh, I guess five or six rounds of the comp when I thought I was travelling well. But what I liked about that style of coaching from Chris is what he is that he gave you time to fix up what he perceived you needed to improve and gave you the confidence that you could do it. So I always thought that was a big moment because then I actually quite enjoyed coming up and tackling guys and getting involved and you know, I didn't hit, manage to hit them too hard, but at least I got them on the blind side occasionally or stopped the ball and felt like you're making more of an impact in the game. Um, and Folksy, um, what I really liked about Folksy's style of coaching was that he was just so brutally honest. Um, and, you know, he wouldn't hide behind anything. He basically, at the end in 2000, um, he just come up to me and he said, uh, hey, Chuck, he said, what are you, um, you going to do next year? And I said, oh, and I'd, so I was 30-odd by then. I said, oh, I don't, I don't know. What do you think I should do? And he said, um, oh, you've got all the records. You've had a good career. I think uh, the game's gone past you. And it's time to retire. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> and, and, I, and I'm like, oh, wow. And that was the end of the conversation. And I drove home. And I was going, oh, bugger you, folks. You know what I mean? And that, but, I mean, I finished the year off and I retire. And I so respect that about him because he was right. You know what I mean? And there's no nice way to tell someone when it's time to, when the game's gone past you. Um, and especially if you've had, you know, like uh, won a comp and been a part of the team for, for so long. And, you know, if you, well, I don't know if we had senior playing groups here or that sort of stuff back then, but certainly, you know, you've been at the club a while. And I actually really respect that about him. And so, you know, and that's how he was. He, he had his expectations of what you were going to do, who you were, and he knew when you were done. And so, yeah, so no, I, uh, I like that about both those guys. Post-career... Uh... You're doing, uh, so I was just doing some research, something about the Super T. 
that you oh, yep. follow. I was looking over your Instagram and the Super T Instagram page. Yeah. Uh, so and you're doing some goal kicking coaching. Uh, well, so how know, does... I spend most of my time um, these days um, booting footballs or watching guys kick footballs and um, goal kicking coaching. Super T is a, a big part of, of that, obviously. So we've developed a, um, a brand of kicking tees that are seen in the NRL for, well, since the mid-90s now. Um, so that all the green coloured tees um, that are restarting the game are part of the Super T range. Um, and myself, uh, Peter Williams and Dan Carter um, are part of that, um, that company. Um, and, yeah, we, um, we keep trying to work out uh, different ways of, um, you know, helping goal kickers along by how they place the ball or, um, and, and the tees have been, um, been great actually. They, uh, to do the pick and it's nice to see plenty of them out there. So you coach like multiple teams. Mm -hmm. So you said you're in Canberra helping them out. Uh, you said New Zealand Warriors. Uh, what's your tip for a young goal kicker coming through the ranks? Like, is there any pointers you give or is it anything that you would say to them? Yeah, um, oh, there's many. I mean, I give tips out all day long to um, goal kickers and sometimes you repeat them all day long as well. But if you're a young goal kicker, um, I had one in, uh, at Canberra yesterday come along, a young teenage kid who's um, over from New Zealand down there in their system. And um, I give him a couple of kicking tees, young Jack, and I told him when he wears them out, I'll give him some more. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> Which means basically get out there on the field and do it. Um, so yeah, goal kicking is something that you won't succeed at unless you spend the time um, out on the field kicking and working out what works for you. Um, contacts are important and um, yeah, it's actually, Scott, it's, it's not a hard job and if you, most, most footballers can do it anyway, it's like booting a football. So you spend enough time out there, yes there's a few tips that can help you out when you are starting to get really serious on it um, and if you're showing some talent at it. but um, you won't make it by just going out and doing one one and two on the weekend. And, and I found that out early in my career as well. I mean, it's something that you do have to work hard at and um, hopefully you can find a way to enjoy it. Do you play any pressure scenarios? I know in like other sports, they try to mimic a moment in a match or in the game. And so when you're goal kicking, is there something that you do when you're like, I don't know, when you're at North Sydney or Belmore or with some of the younger guys saying that you're, need to kick it to go to extra time or you need to kick it for the win or put an eight-point lead on with like five minutes to go. Is everyone does like that? that. Yeah, everyone sort of thinks that they are the moments that you have to do. But you, you basically, you can't really prepare for that. So what you can prepare for is what, what you can control in terms of, you know, the shape of a goal kick or trying to produce something. And then when those moments come along, when you're younger, I get it, you might fear them. But if you've had a couple of those moments in your career where you've kicked some clutch goals and what have you, you actually look forward to it. You look forward to the emotion that comes with the success afterwards. And that should sort of be where you are at the time while you're kicking it. You know, if you're kicking it, thinking after this kick goes over, we're going to be so ecstatic, you know, we're going to have a good night, we won the game or something like that. You're in a far better place to kick the goal than if you're standing there fearing not kicking it. So, you know, putting yourself in a positive mind space to actually kick goals is hugely important and you can't do it the whole time. So what I'd suggest to them is don't try and kick those goals all day long mm. every week because you won't, but just watch the ball go over 
and be comfortable with what you do and what you can control. One of our actual uh, followers on our social media said, uh, wanted to bring up the fact that you commentated for Sky Sports. Uh, yep. I don't know if you still do with the COVID situation with the Warriors. First of all, how did that job come across? Because you're currently based in Sydney, if that's correct. And yeah, no, I've lived in Sydney um, since I started playing rugby league and the commentary I've done for Sky Television over the years has been New Zealand games, mm. the games broadcast out of New Zealand. So I'll travel back there to do the game. Um, and then turn around and come back to Australia. So we've lived here for nearly 30 years now. Um, and when I do go, I mean, fortunately, I do get a lot of trips back to, to New Zealand, but no. So the last couple of years, um, there's been no broadcast out of New Zealand. So uh, Sky TV have been really good to me. I, I work here for them, doing mm -hmm. some stories, some interviews, and then I go to all the Warriors games and uh, we have a couple of TV shows pre and post match with... Uh, uh, in New Zealand, so I do some work for them there um, with some analysts and some crosses and that sort of stuff back to the games. One of our um, followers who mentioned that actually uh, went on to uh, go on to say when the Warriors were playing at home and Foxtel would have the Sky Sports commentary team. Yep. They went on to say that you were by far the most entertaining commentator <laughs> they've ever seen in the game. Uh, probably, they said probably probably my brother sending you a message. <laughs> well, well, no, um, in fact, my brother wouldn't say that. No, it wouldn't be him. <laughs> no, but I do remember when I was getting into the sport and you know younger, watching the games and stuff like that. And I always watched the Warriors play at home because yeah. I just love the commentary. It's so so different to what it is in a like the Fox Sports crew or the Channel Nine crew. Yeah, it was very enjoyable. You could actually feel the enjoyment from in the lounge room and you know whatever the Warriors were doing so it was but you had some catchphrase I can't remember them all but you had some catchphrases some funny sayings was that something that you planned or was that just off the top of your head on the run because there's I don't think you can catchphrases and stuff like that there's many cliches that commentators use from time to time and it's so easy to go back there and repeat them over and over again mm. so um, yeah you probably need a few in your preparation um, but in the heat of the moment and the motion, you know, guys like Andrew Voss and, and those guys, they don't have those catchphrases prepared for that particular game. That just comes naturally to them. Um, I, I found with the commentary um, in the first couple of years, um, you know, it was a little bit of a challenge in terms of being relaxed to actually just let it flow. And, mm. and I was, I'm not a commentator. There's uh, distinct roles. There's a ball-by-ball -ball commentator. Oh, yeah. Which is someone like Andrew Voss or Ray yep. Warren. Um, and then there's, uh, you know, your, your colour commentators or your analysts, I guess, is what you want to call them, that, that, that make up the team. So that was basically and has been my role um, with Sky TV. Um, and been really lucky to call with um, quite a few callers over the years. We had a few... You guys, Glenn Lama, currently at Sky. Um, and hopefully we get back into it once um, we start broadcasting some games um, back out of NZ, yeah. But, um, yeah, do a lot of work on on the players who are playing, but I don't think you can generally do too much. You might hear something on a radio show or something, you think, hey, that's quite <laughs> and And that might then all of a sudden come back to you in the middle of a commentary or something and you might sprout it out, you know what I mean? So, yeah, that's generally how that works. Did you, if you compare playing the game first up and then your first time com uh, being in the commentary box, calling a game, 
was there any like could you compare the nerves or was it a different sort of nerves and um no i don't think i had nerves i had tony iro and i were commentating with jason costigan was our first game we commentated for sky tv after sky had parted ways with graham hughes was doing a lot of work for sky back in the time and um we only went over there in February and commentated a half a game off um, the TV, a replay of a game. And then they turned around and said, right, you guys are commentating round one this year. Oh, wow. And then one of the other games I really loved because the guys, you've got to have a rapport with the guys. I can remember flying and cutting it a bit fine one time getting to Auckland for a game. And the plane was late. It was the only time ever. And I don't know if the bosses have, have ever worked it out. But I, I only got to the ground at half time of the game because the plane was that late. And um, wow. anyway, I rang the producer at the time and he said, oh, well, um, just come anyway. And um, so I said, I might even get there by half time. And so I got there and I raced up the back of Mount Smart stairs and um, put the cans on. And uh, I, I listened to the in the cab um, what had happened in the game because someone on uh, Radio Sport or someone in New Zealand were given a bit of a commentary and they said the left edge of the of the uh, <clears throat> Cowboys wasn't working or something like that and um, anyway I said okay cool and then I got up there and so as the second half started Tony Iro says after Jason Costigan had sort of started the game he said oh he said Chuck uh, Darrow he said uh, great first half they're your thoughts you know what I mean oh, <laughs> and he was just having a bit of a lend to me you know what I mean and I, said, oh, Tony, I said oh it was a cracking first half you know I rattled out the score and I said and that left edge of the cows I said I don't know if it'll stand up in the second half he said if it, I said if it doesn't you know then uh, then they'll be in deep and uh, anyway he looked at me and go, oh yeah too good you know what I mean so but no, so oh. we, we always used to have a bit of fun there, yeah, and I thought, right, I haven't even seen the first half. So, <laughs> so the, the fun does translate on to the the home. It definitely does it a different experience. Uh, today, do you still direct the Bulldogs, or I know you work for oh, a lot of clubs, of so it's pretty. No, it's uh, they'll always be paramount, uh, Canterbury for mine. I know, you know, I um, I spend time at other clubs as well, but there's nothing like um, Belmore and. You know, one playing there, taking your thoughts back to there, supporting them now. I popped over and um, been watching a couple of games lately and even just going to ANZ and sitting in the stand and, and watching the games with the boys, um, which, you oh, know, well. like hasn't been, you know, the greatest experience, but it's good to get them and support them and, and keep them alive. And we we wish, um, you know, that we'll find some success um, just as quick as we can. Do you have any opinions on the success or from an outside looking in, what they need to do next or are they on the right path and just bite some time and we'll be up uh, there again? I, I think it's, it's probably too complex a picture to pin down to any one thing at, at the time but you know it, it takes um, a lot of time um, to get yourself into a position where you're competing for competitions mm. um, like in the top four and, and, and having a crack at winning the comp each year. Um, I, I guess changes at board, at coach, at player level, um, mass changes on mass regularly from years to years obviously isn't a winning formula. Mm. And for, for one reason or another, we've sort of fallen into that pattern um, over the past few years. So let's hope some stability um, and, you know, uh, 
in some time, in a short period of time, not too long, hopefully, um, we we see the benefit of that stability and, um, and and some new talents coming through and and winning some games of football. So yeah, it's, um, yeah it's, it's a big picture, a lot of components to it. You highlighted uh, Belmore playing in front of a packed Belmore Sports Ground. Some crowds going north of twenty thousand. Can't that can't unfortunately happen today? But you also played. In front of uh, North Sydney Oval, which uh, Greg Fol- Greg Folomo calls it Bear Park. Can you compare the two? Because, uh... um, yeah, well, they they both provide sort of similar atmospheres when they're full. I mean, North Sydney Oval was you know all we knew when we first came here, and um, that was a yeah you know, that was a great crowd to play in front of when you know, North Sydney were doing well then as well. You know what I mean? So we've got big crowds here, so. And coming up the tunnel out of North Sydney Oval, I mean, you can only basically come out one at a time. It's that small. It was built that long ago. You know? <laughs> um, and then Belmore, you know, it's 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 hardcore. You know what I mean? It's mm. you go for a day there and the masses are just sort of starting to congregate in Terry Lamb Oval there out the back and then all swarm into the ground and... You know, the multicultural days back in the years when um, Lynn Anderson and the marketing crew there were riding high off the back of that and, and you couldn't get a, a seat on the grass on the hill and, the, you know, the Peter Moore um, hill up there. So, yeah, no, they're, they're great days. Um, big flags flying around and, yeah, no, so they're, they're, while they're different grounds, when they're chock-a-block, there's no better place to be, but they don't become chock-a-block unless the team's doing really well. Yeah, got to get the win. Do you actually remember your first try at all? No. Not at all? <laughs> no, I don't. No, it was, uh, first try against well, Parramatta. Been, was it Parramatta, was it? You, yeah, your first try was with the Bears round three at North Sydney Oval against Parramatta. Oh, I do actually, yeah, no. Um, so they kicked long and um, I grabbed it in goal. I beat three guys out of the end goal, and then I took off up the left-hand side, fended off, I think, most of the growths, um, half of the <laughs> Parramatta team, then sidestepped to the right, and then I think yeah, all up was um, about a 120-metre run try. <laughs> Come back again? <laughs> Come back for, to run another lap? I might, have even, I might have even had a chip and a chase in there as well. <laughs> Yeah, because uh, we asked uh, Barry Ward, our last special guest, that question. Oh, Barry Ward. Okay, well, that wouldn't have been a try that Barry Ward scored. <laughs> he, he told us, I said, do you remember your first try? And he said, oh, I was at Belmore and I ran 40 metres. And he goes, every five years or so, I add an extra 10 metres to make it sound more impressive. I, I had a, we had a moment in, um, in the sheds at North Sydney Oval when we played a semi-final against the Bears. Um, and Wardy cost himself the grand final because... Jason Taylor, who was playing for North at the time, had this nose guard on. And oh, yeah. it was like a um, Batman mask. <laughs> and, and, and before the game, I can't exactly say what Barry totally said because a lot of the words can't be repeated, but he suggested that there was no way Jason Taylor would be wearing that mask at the end of the game. And, <laughs> and sure enough, in the second half, Barry elbows him in the face with this mask on or something like that in a tackle and got sent off. And it cost, it cost Wardy the grand final, but but he was right. He didn't wear the mask at the end of the game. <laughs> <laughs> He's a great man, Wardy. Uh, the, do you remember your first try for the Bulldogs? Uh, similar to the one I scored. <laughs> yeah, 120-meter effort. Side to side. 
Yeah, no, no, I don't. <laughs> I not scoring a try. I set up a try which I really remember at yep. Canterbury one day, and it was the year. It was '95. It was when we played Manly, who, like I previously said, had only got beaten twice that year. We're at Billmore. It might have been a Friday night game. It's definitely a night game. And the reason I remember it because I didn't fend too many people off in my career. And so I normally got peppered with, you know, most of the kicks because they say, so send it down to Halligan because he can't beat too many people and we'll get be able to trap them down there. So anyway, it wasn't a great kick from Tuvi or someone. And I managed to catch it. And I come back at the line and I fended, actually managed to fend someone off and he fell, fell over, one of the Manly players, which is, you know, never happens, you know what I mean? I was even nearly surprised myself. I just about tripped over. Anyway, <laughs> I found my feet got close to the line, think I was going to score, sort of propped up and then offloaded the ball to someone else. It wasn't Barr, might have been Jason Etherington or someone, and they scored a try. Um, but uh, that was more what I remembered because I'd never hardly set anyone else up for a try. I got set up plenty of times myself, but yeah. Well, your first try for the Bulldogs was against the Sharks at Belmore over in around two game in your first season. So very quick to get off the mark in the new, the new colours. Uh, you must have been down on numbers, Cronulla. <laughs> no, you ran 115 metres. You got from the dead ball line, ran all the way. You even ran past the fullback three times. There. They might have <laughs> even thought it was Jason Williams. <laughs> uh, did you ever stop to think in your time when you're playing? You think on how crazy is this? I've gone from being a union player to now an elite league player who represents my country, winning grand finals or playing finals footy. Like sometimes. It, if you're busy enough, you don't really have enough time to stop and pinch yourself or, or work out what's going on. Um, and that was certainly the case with um, with myself actually coming here to play rugby league. Um, yeah, I, uh, I don't think I ever really sat down to work it out or how it um, sort of like evolved, but it, it was what we did. It was, I just felt really lucky that we were professional footballers, um, you know, I was still doing a little bit of work along the way with different sort of bits and pieces, but the focus was on playing football, winning games of football, making yourself better. Um, and pretty much, you know, fortunately enough, um, you know, I've been paid to do it. Um, and we, we live a pretty good life. Most footballers, you know, don't, don't want it too much really. You know what I mean? So no, I mean, it's, it's, it's awesome. You know, we're lucky. You've given us plenty of time today, and I'll, I think we've gone over the 20 minute oh, grid yeah. that you agreed yeah, no, with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll just, could I finish it off with one question the 95 grand final, the victory? Can you, for someone like myself, or never, you know, you get that situation? Like, I remember grand finals being, I feel like I'm as nervous as anyone when I'm watching a Canterbury game. I always believe we can win, no matter who we verse. Uh, no matter if we're, we're sitting dead, which we are last at the moment, if we could verse Penrith next week, I'd say we'd have a chance of winning. Um, but can you describe the grand final week and what it was like and post-grand final, if, if you could? Or do you remember much of it at all? I, I do remember post-grand final. Um, and I didn't actually get to enjoy it because we, Johnny Timu and myself, had to board a plane for Auckland the very next morning. Oh, wow. And, yeah, so we played Manly, obviously. Um, and we hadn't had a lot of sleep that night. And um, <laughs> I could imagine. <laughs> yeah. And Matthew Ridge was on the plane as well, going the next morning over because we we're all going into Kiwi camp. And uh, anyway, he didn't particularly want to sit beside us. So 
I'd, I'd made sure he did and started ordering, <laughs> ordering some drinks at like, you know, like 10 o'clock in the morning while we were on the plane. <laughs> and so when we got to New Zealand, it was totally the wrong thing to do. Um, I'd actually, halfway through the night uh, while we're celebrating, I'd said to um, Bullfrog, I said, oh, Bullfrog, I don't think I'll um, catch that plane tomorrow. Um, we'll just stay here and party for a day or two and we'll go later in the week. And he just said, Chuck, he said, if you don't catch that plane in the morning, he said, you won't play for Canterbury again. You know what oh, I mean? Well. Wake, up, wake up to yourself. And um, I sort of wondered if he was joking. And I mean, we'd all had a few. And, we're, and he said, no, I'm not joking. He said, you hop on that plane. You grab Johnny Timu and you hop on that plane, even if you haven't got any clothes or what have you, and you get there and you go and make sure you don't upset what's going to happen next with the, the Kiwi setup. You know what I mean? And I actually respect that now, you know what I mean? You sometimes can see be a bit full of yourself. So we, I remember Linda and a good friend of mine, um, Kevin Shawler, who was over in All Black um, Second Rara, um, they got us to the airport. We weren't in a great, in great shape, but we managed to get on the plane and we managed mm -hmm. to get to Auckland. And I don't know how we actually got to the hotel, but we managed to get there, <laughs> had a sleep, and then we were in camp for, you know, maybe the Monday or whatever it was. Wow. And away we went. But yeah, so no, it's a couple of life lessons from good people. So it was good. Wow, that was... But yes, I didn't, get, I didn't get to celebrate that week with the guys, but, you know, we did the right thing and at the end of the day, which was good. Do you remember before the game? Because we actually asked Adam Perry this question when he was on the podcast about the 2004 Grand Final. Oh, and he yeah. told us a funny story when he uh, he said he got to the ground and you know the team's there and he's put on he said he doesn't he doesn't normally get dressed that early and he just was so nervous that he chucked on his gear he's got his thing and he's like oh I have to sit back and wait. Even the youngster when we were playing he never got dressed at all. <laughs> <He's>, <laughs> yeah, he told us that, yeah, and then he said he remember like reading over big league magazines and watching the, this TV and saying he just saw the roosters rock up and he said he already put tape around his socks. And he said that's as much as he can remember until full time. He said he doesn't remember the game, how he played, or what he actually did in the game until full time. He said that's how he remembers that night. It was there because you said it was so damn nervous. Was that something like, were you nervous or were you pretty cool? You know, I guess I would have been nervous. I don't particularly remember um, any moments that sort of like put me out of kilter going into '95 um, or '94, really. Um, but you are, you're sort of like, you're alive. I remember the bus trips. The bus trips were great from Belmore to um, Sydney Football Stadium. One, because it took some time. So you had to drive to the Leagues Club and then there'd be that many mad Canterbury supporters <laughs> on the road going down Canterbury Road and they'd be driving the wrong way and tooting the horn and <laughs> there'd be no room at all. And next minute a car would come up on the pavement and what have you and be blue and white and bah, 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 all the way down. And I can always remember Matthew Ridge actually saying to me, he said, we never really got a lot of that because I was explaining to him what was going on and uh, these cars down Canterbury Road and everything and houses painted sort of blue and white and stuff. I, I so remember that. Um, but, and he said, we never got any of that. You know what I mean? We just hop on the bus and get to the ground. Mm -hmm. So by the time you got on the, you saw what it meant to the community. It was just, it was chaos. So you didn't have really time to get nervous then when you're watching some car flying down with a fluffy dice bumping out and driving along with big news and stuff, nearly having an accident. You know what I mean? I know. 
Yeah, yeah. Our time was uh, spent watching everyone else have a good time while we were getting ready to play footy. That would have been an amazing bus ride. I, you actually see it uh, in some way. a better bus ride on the way home, actually, when, you actually, uh, <laughs> yeah. when you've won. Did you actually move anywhere? Like, did you get stuck? Stuck there because they're in the way, and you're like, can uh, I get back to the next one? be a police car or something come and move a couple of cars out of the road and <laughs> whatever. So it was sort of, I can't really remember any real accidents, but it was sort of some pretty hairy sort of times. It does get crazy actually at uh, Stadium Australia if they get a win at full time. Oh, okay. the, the, uh, the horns go off, and you get stuck. And then, I mean, it's only a, probably a quarter of what that would have felt like being on the bus watching. All that. Uh, I want to thank you, honestly, for your time. It's meant the world to myself. Uh, Matt is absolutely spewing, and he's flicked a few messages over. And I said I've traded in for a better uh, guest. I've got a, the best guest. Uh, 166 games for the Bulldogs, 64 games for the Bears, and then your 20 games uh, for New Zealand. You are an absolute legend of the game. And we just thank you for you know, reaching, uh, accepting our request to come on our podcast. Not a problem, Scott. If you can go back and get some footage of that first try of mine against Parramatta, that'll be good. Yeah, I'll, I'll find it and send it to you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, mate. Enjoy the rest of your day.